Evening. Welcome, everybody. It's lovely to see so many people. Um, I, you know, we usually have a full house, but what we decided to do uh, with Pauline's visit, because so many people wanted to connect with her, is we've uh, had her visit the different institutions, both in Melbourne and Sydney, um, you know, meeting the curators and directors and whoever it is uh, who was interested to meet her and find out about the museum through the last couple of days. So my worry was that tonight, because everyone's met her already, that we <laughs> wouldn't have anybody here. But I think, you know, uh, M Plus is such an important institution in our region and um, everybody is very keen uh, to know more about it. Uh, quite a few of the institutional people just came for a drink and they uh, have gone because she's actually spoken to so many people over the last five days. Just for, yes, Tony, there's a chair, a chair there. So we, do you want uh, Rosalind for him to come and sit here? No. So um, I, what I, for those people who don't know, uh, this uh, a kind of talk um, is part of the SCAF Culture and Ideas series. What we do uh, is for every exhibition that we put on, we would put on maybe twice a week almost now. I don't know, Michael, am I exaggerating? Probably a little bit, but... Ma- a little bit. <laughs> I set myself up for that, didn't I? Um, look, once a week, once every two weeks, it varies a bit. There are clusters and then uh, more open periods where we try and have a speaker, not necessarily bringing someone from Hong Kong, but we try and have a speaker that speaks either directly to the exhibition or to uh, at least the culture um, from which the exhibition is drawn or some related topic. And for those who have followed the Culture and Idea series, we've had, uh, you know, anything from business people to academics to panels to um, book uh, uh, writers, uh, creative writers. The list goes on and on. You, c- you can look on the internet. So Pauline's talk is part of that um, kind of cluster of talks in museums, they call it public programs. I don't like that term. So we call it culture and ideas. So it's a sharing of ideas around the issues that have been raised by the exhibition directly or indirectly. Now, um, Pauline is, we got an Australia Council grant in order to bring Pauline over. It's taken the patience of Job for her to find a slot in her schedule. And we almost gave up. And just as we were about to give up, uh, we finally found a date that suited. And that's tonight. So uh, we feel so thrilled that she was able to come. She went to Melbourne before and uh, has moved on to Sydney. She arrived only yesterday. And for those of you who, I mean, we know her as a curator of uh, at M Plus Museum, not the only curator, but there's not a huge contingent of curators. But um, her great claim to fame, early great claim to fame, was she won a 
uh, an award that was given in 2007, which was given by Uli Sig, a bit behind the scenes. He didn't sort of put his name that much forward, which was called the CCAA, which was a, an award for an art critic in China. Uh, not necessarily in China, but an, uh, uh, no, uh, an art critic award. Now, one thing I want to say, which Pauline won't, Oh, I don't think you will, Pauline, is that in China, uh, having been there so many times now and spoken to so many people and worked with so many artists, one realizes that it's a little bit the Wild West when it comes to a lot of things. Uh, Louise is nodding vigorously, and anybody who has had a connection with China knows this. But we're talking specifically now about art critics. Most people in China wear several hats. They are an art critic. They often are an art consultant. They're involved in the selling of work. They are often guns for hire when it comes to catalogue writing. Uh, so, you know, if you pay X person X, Y amount, they'll write the catalogue essay even if they don't hate the artist. So it's, it's, it's a kind of – the separation of roles is not um, as clear as it would be in the Western countries that we are familiar with, or even in Japan. It's a different thing. And as a result, the role of an art critic there is di difficult. Would you agree with that, Pauline? It's, it's difficult. It's difficult because people either perceive you as having a whole lot of different hats that you're not revealing, or you really do have a whole lot of different hats, and it's not just a perception. And so to be an independent critic or an independent art historian in China is a difficult job. Now, I'm sure things will change and they're evolving all the time. Pauline is, uh, I think, um, you know, part of a team that is functioning already before the building's built uh, like a Western-style museum. It's run by Lars Nitva, who ran the Tate Modern, as we know. Uh, this is not one of those guns for hire kind of institutions. They have proper curatorial practice. Uh, you know, things are considered in a way that we would feel familiar with. So on that note, she's won this amazing prize in 2007. It obviously gave her, um, you know, great uh, attention was brought to her. Uh, I, I have very rarely come across anyone in the art world where, it, you know, we all know how difficult the art world can be, where everybody speaks highly of a person uh, in the way that they speak highly of Pauline. It doesn't matter who I've spoken to. People say she's a great curator. She's highly intelligent. She's an original thinker. You know, Pauline, I don't want your ears to burn too much. But, uh, you know, mostly everyone's got a gripe of some kind about uh, various people, but not about Pauline Yao. She worked at the San Francisco uh, in San Francisco at the museum there with Dorian. You were with Dorian Chung at some point. And Dorian, who went on to MoMA, has now, uh, well, quite a while ago now, joined M Plus as well. So they've got a great team there. People have worked in the West, who've, uh, Pauline is from Chicago, but people who have worked in the West who understand uh, the separation of tasks and how, you know, how perception can cloud things and also how you can't have. Uh, like uh, the Gilbert and Sullivan, what was his name? Um, 
Come on, guys. Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado, the guy who had every Michael, every hat in the world. He was uh, chief justice. He was chief executioner. He was, you know, uh, chief accountant. He was, <laughs> he was everything to everybody. And as a result, nothing to, to anybody. Pauline, I'm going to hand over to you. We podcast these talks. So uh, they go on the web afterwards. And uh, so, so you know, you're here, so you don't need to, but you can tell other people uh, to listen to the podcast. So I, I hand it over to you now, Pauline. Why don't you sit closer to the screen there? Yeah. Okay. All right. So thank you so much, Jean, for that um, introduction. I really, uh, now I feel like I can't possibly live up to that <laughs> introduction. But no, it's really, really amazing to be here. Um, as she mentioned, it's taken... Um, a lot of a lot of time uh, to plan for me to be able to come here for uh, a week, and I've had a great time. I'm in such good hands and being so well taken care of, and um, and I really want to thank the the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation and all the team that's here that helped to make it happen. So um, in the next forty minutes or so, forty five minutes, I'm going to try to keep. Uh, attention to the time. I am going to give you a little bit of an introduction to um, to M plus. I don't, you know, I know people kind of have a awareness about what M plus is, but what I have put together in terms of slides is uh, a lot of architectural information so you can kind of learn about the building. I think that's really essential. It's really where our heads are right now. Um, as you know, we're doing programming. We are um, building the collection right now. We're building our team and we're building the building. So um, we spend a lot of time thinking and planning about how we will eventually use the building. Um, and so I have slides about that and I also have some information about the collection so I can kind of give some overview. Um, you know, we're, we're, like I said, we're quite busy doing um, a lot of things. So it'll just be an overview and then, and then I guess I'll try to leave time for, for questions and, and Q&A. Um, so, oh, where's the pointer? It's in my pocket. Hold on. <laughs> ah, there it is. <laughs> Okay, so just a little bit of background. I have been um, at MPLUS for two and a half years, close, um, getting close to, to three years. And um, as Jean said, I moved from Beijing. And uh, we have a great team at MPLUS and uh, headed up by, by Lars uh, Nitva. And um, we have been working very hard to... Um, do what we call building the museum from the inside out. So we're doing all the programs, we're doing the collection, we're doing all these things before we actually have uh, the building. Um, this is maybe uh, perhaps a, an image that's familiar to people. Anyway, it's a rendering of what the building will uh, look like. I don't have a laser pointer here, but anyway, that's very obvious. This is in West Kowloon. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of where this is as well, but that's sort of... Uh, the architect's rendering of what things will look like um, in the future. Um, just a note about the timeline. Uh, so construction has started on the building and we've been doing foundation work already on the site and uh, the building should be finished in 2018, uh, which means uh, realistically an opening date to the public in 2019. So that's the time frame that we're working on uh, right now. 
And just a bit of background. So West Kowloon, you know, as you know, M plus sits within the West Kowloon Cultural District, which is, I think, perhaps one of the largest cultural infrastructure projects happening um, in the world, perhaps. It's, it's a, a massive piece of reclaimed land. And uh, the, this is kind of just, it's an, actually an old photograph, an old rendering, but just gives you a, an idea of where M plus sits within this district. And that sort of peninsula is, uh, uh, slated to be a, a large uh, park. And then uh, the buildings to the right of M+, there will be um, a number of cultural facilities. So obviously there's performing arts centers, opera house, um, <clears throat> theaters. There will also be hotel and office and residential buildings on the site. And um, as you go all the way to the east, uh, this Shichu uh, Center, which is a Cantonese uh, opera uh, center. So in this very large cultural district with, I think, slated um, more like, between 10 and 15 cultural facilities, uh, M Plus and the Shichu Center, um, the Arts Pavilion, which I'll mention in a moment, and the park are in the first phase. So we're, we'll be um, opening, as I said, in 2018, 2019. But there's another sort of phase after us, which is um, a whole other uh, slate of, of facilities. Uh, the Arts Pavilion is um, a pavilion which is going to be sort of, well, sort of where the text is, but a little bit, um, a little bit where the, the letter N is. An Arts Pavilion is a um, is a building that will be will be using it. It will be finished uh, next year, about one year from now, and we'll be able to use that building as a kind of temporary exhibition space until we have our our building. And the idea there was that um, Hong Kong is really lacking exhibition spaces. Hong Kong, as you know, space is such a premium. It's a very dense place. And uh, the the idea to build a pavilion was to have a, a functioning kind of exhibition space on um, the site. And we use that until we open. And then after we open, we'll kind of hand this back to the arts community. So it becomes a space that other places can rent and use, and we don't have any, you know, control over it um, anymore. Hmm? Okay, so that's uh, in the scheme of Hong Kong. Um, at the bottom here, we're looking at that the convention center there, and one Thai, uh and uh, Admiralty Central, and then across uh, is the location of, of the West Kowloon Cultural District. Yeah, so that's the site of where M Plus will be, and uh, will be next to the park and the building that's there behind. Um, so the v very large square is is the M Plus building, and the building behind is our conservation and storage facility. So we fought very, very hard to have our um, collection and uh, storage facilities on site. Essentially, it's I know it's a separate building, but it is connected through an underground tunnel. Um, this was very important to us because. Uh, as I just said, I mean, Hong Kong space is uh, so, uh, such a premium, but to have the collection to be potentially stored a 45-minute or 20-minute even drive away, we just felt like we really needed to have things close by as well for people to do research in the future and to make that facilitation of bringing the collection into view um, more frequent. Uh, here's sort of... Closer view, uh, Lyric Theater, HOR, refers to hotel office residence. And um, 
there's lots of acronyms, sorry. <laughs> That's Hong Kong, Hong Kong likes acronyms. Uh, CSF is our conservation storage facility. RDE is retail dining entertainment. So, yes, there are different, it's a different mix of things happening around our, our building, um, essentially, just to give you that, that sense. Um, so this is the, uh, this is the building, the design that was uh, awarded, um, it's designed by Herzog and Moran in partnership with TFP, Farrells, and, and Arup. Uh, they are working very hard now. We've now reached the kind of completed design, detailed design. So, so construction will start on the main building um, uh, now. Now we're just doing the foundation. But behind it, you can see that that building behind is also the conservation and storage. What's interesting, and I'll go into some more detail about this building um, it sits right next to the park. It is a kind of... The, uh, some of the design um, incorporates a, uh, a way for people to basically move from the park into the building and up to the, um, the sort of rooftop uh, platform there. And on the right, if you see this um, kind of stairway, that is uh, meant for... It will be open even when the museum is not open. Essentially, so if the museum is closed, people could still move and still access the rooftop. So it's a public space that will be open for anyone to access, um, you know, despite the time that the museum is, uh, is open. And then underneath that kind of stairway is where our learning and education uh, centers are. So, yeah, this is our kind of uh, mission statement, sort of motto. Uh, M plus is uh, more than a museum of building. It's, uh, and again, just to remind you, it's, you know, we're a museum of 20th and 21st century visual culture. So uh, this is what we see is a very, is a very global way of um, a global approach, but looking at things from a kind of perspective of Hong Kong. Uh, when we say visual culture, we're referring primarily to three sort of disciplinary areas, and that's uh, visual art is one of those, but um, certainly uh, we have an equal measure uh, architecture and design as another disciplinary uh, area, and as well a uh, moving image. So I think, and I think sometimes that gets a little bit lost in the, measure, in, in the message, I think, <clears throat> because of uh, partially just because of the, yeah, the team, and then uh, the sort of you know, familiarity as well with Herzog and Marum for doing certain major museums like Tate that everyone uh, tends to think of M plus as being an art museum. But we're very much a visual culture museum and meant to encompass a variety of other uh, disciplines. And the whole idea that we have with the galleries is to really integrate things together so you wouldn't have it separated out um, by, by medium or, or by discipline. But we really want to find a way to mix things together. This is a, a view of the building as it might look from uh, the harbor. And again, a kind of promenade in front. People can access um, that level um, and that sort of peaked small kind of peaked uh, a, small A-shaped thing uh, is, is that sort of stairway that goes up to the roof. And all of the galleries are on this horizontal slab. And then the vertical slab has some of our resource center um, offices and uh, restaurant, which I'll go into more detail. So this is kind of how the building looks if you were to pull it apart into the different sections. Um, 
And the found space is a kind of semi-underground. I'll explain that further. Um, platform is the kind of level, sort of like the lobby, the area people would walk in, a kind of open atrium uh, space. It has some gallery spaces, but also things like a store. We're also going to have a moving image sort of cinema center. And um, some of the educational facilities will be there. And then the podium level, uh, which is three there, is is all the gallery spaces. So I think unlike a lot of museums people are used to going to where you're going up and down escalators into different galleries, um, our galleries are going to be all on one level, all on one floor. So um, it's a massive, massive space to, to cover and to navigate. <clears throat> and I think that's a very unique uh, architectural feature. Um, and then on the tower level, as I, as I mentioned, the kind of... Uh, Resource center, library, offices, and, and so on. And then just this is kind of um, a little bit of an a interesting tidbit story about, um, about the architecture of the building and what partially what made us um, go with uh, Herzog and Demeron in terms of the selection for the competition. So... Our building, as you can see that on the left there, that plan, the letter B, that's the footprint of the M-plus building. And that blue line going through is an MTR. It's, it's, a, it's a subway tunnel. So basically the airport express train, which is an underground train, runs underneath our building or underneath the footprint of where M-plus is meant to be. So you can imagine, as um, if there are any architects in the room, you can imagine how that might be a kind of challenge in how you would uh, consider to build a building on top of this tunnel. And it runs in this kind of, um, you know, diagonal uh, way, and that's what it looks like, uh, essentially, underground. That is a kind of... Um, I think that's actually a different tunnel, but I mean, that's to sort of give you an idea of the size of um, subway tunnel that's running directly underneath our building. So one of the unique features um, of the Herzog and de Moran design was that, I, unlike a lot of the other architects in the competition who I think hadn't really found a way to deal with this problem, I mean, a lot of architecture, the way I always think about architecture it's about resolving problems so this is essentially a very you know a problem one has to resolve um and they all approached it in in different ways either kind of kind of avoiding it and not really um dealing with it directly but Herzog and Moran their idea was to kind of excavate around it so their sort of stroke of brilliance in their design is that the building will now kind of um have a go down into the ground and and there'll be they're sort of opening up kind of these cavernous spaces next to the tunnel. And there will be a, almost like a um, sort of mirroring of the tunnel outline in some of our spaces. So what we have is this space that we call found space. So if you're looking at the right, that's kind of an elevation view, the tunnel underneath. And then they've kind of dug deeper and are opening up these uh, spaces, which for us, we wanted to have... Um, in the building, something that felt kind of industrial. A lot of a lot of the art, is particularly a lot of Chinese contemporary art, has been made for, uh, made in, and exhibited in um, industrial type of spaces. I mean, not necessarily born into a white cube. Um, 
So we wanted to kind of replicate some of that. So what we've been able to do, fortunately, through their design is to come up with a way to have some somewhat unpredictable um, uh, spaces to work with. And uh, we're calling it, at the moment, found space or industrial space. So these are kind of uh, a little bit cavernous, underground, industrial-feeling spaces. Might look something like this, perhaps. Um, And on the right there, that kind of stepped outline is sort of like a mirroring of the tunnel um, as it's moving through the building. And then if you were standing there and looking up, you would be able to have this open space looking up into the tower. So the idea, you know, constantly to kind of um, keep people aware of, uh, of, of their space and, and orientation um, within the building. These are just uh, some of the renderings. And um, this is a bit... Uh, Technical, our uh, basement, which has underground tunnels, so our sort of loading docks and all that is happening um, out of out of sight uh, underground. And like I said, that part does connect with the storage facility. So um, you know, the taxi drop off, bus drop off, all that would be um, more or less underground. There's an underground system of roadways throughout the whole district. Uh, this is a rendering of. Uh, on the park level, so if you were entering from the park, the building uh, might look something like this and uh, kind of have these, you know, it's concrete on the exterior at the top there are um, ceramic tiles. Uh, still working out details on what the color will be and the finish, but um, the, it's, a, it's a very kind of industrial feeling, uh, but uh, we're working with, with different kind of finishes that might be sort of like a steel gray or maybe even like a green color that kind of mimics some of the Chinese tiles that you see in Chinese architecture. Um, and then this overhang, and this is kind of a, um, one of the entrances. It's a, essentially a square building, so you can, and there'll be entrances from all different sides. Uh, this is that level as you come in. As you can see, there's sort of a learning center. We have a moving image center, a large auditorium, a theater. There's an open lobby plaza, uh, so to speak, um, a gift shop. And then this reconfigurable on the left is one of the temporary exhibition spaces. Um, <clears throat> most, like I said, most of the exhibition spaces are one floor up, but, but this one is for changing exhibitions. This is a view of what it might look like if you came from another angle into the build into the the building. This is kind of an artist square. So if you're walking uh, through the sort of row of of buildings on the right, you'd have the conservation storage, and on the left, you'd have a kind of entrance in, into M plus. Um, another view. Um, when we show this slide, we always joke and say that architects uh, forget that museums actually need to have signage. <laughs> so when the building won't look exactly like this, we hopefully will have some signs to tell you what's on view and um, various different exhibitions that we have. But anyway, this is a nice uh, illusion <laughs> of cleanliness. <laughs> Um, yeah, again, like interior view of the lobby space that you would take the escalators to go um, to go up to the galleries. And once you um, took those escalators up, these are some of the views looking, you know, looking back down into that 
kind of what we're calling the sort of found space. And you now here you can kind of see that um, sort of like the outline of the of the subway tunnel moving through the building. Um, auditorium. Uh, it's a space that can be used in multiple different ways, clo- closed off, um, totally darkened, uh, you know, with a large projection, or could be um, uh, opened up and you have a view onto the, onto the harbor, kind of open seating area. Um, this is a level with all the galleries. So this is that, ver- that you know, big horizontal slab and we have a variety of different uh, gallery spaces and the reconfigurable, something like a temporary exhibition space. And then um, our collection will be on view in the different gallery spaces. As I said, the idea is to really integrate the moving image, design architecture, and visual arts together. So um, we're still discussing and working out how exactly we do that. It's... um, you know, it sounds very easy, but we have to uh, think very carefully about the best way to do that. Because <clears throat> my experience, it really hasn't been done before. The easier way would be to have design galleries and have all the furniture in, you know, teapots or whatever in one room and have all the visual art in, in another area. But we really want to try to mix um, as, together as much as possible and, um, and to have different kind of narratives uh, come through. And so the gallery spaces themselves are quite different. Like they have different ceiling heights. They might have different um, ceiling and lighting uh, patterns. Um, and some have more fixed walls, some more movable. Um, so it gives some variation because it's a very, very big space that people are going to be walking through. So... Um, yeah, we want audiences to to not feel uh, not to get too disoriented as well um, in the process. This is like if you came up the escalator because all the galleries are on one floor, you would be in the center of the building, sort of like at the hub at the middle, and you could decide which quadrant of galleries or which suite of galleries you would want to um, enter. And there's a sort of skylight where you could look up to the tower as well. Um, some renderings of some of the gallery spaces. Some of them um, are projected to have uh, skylights, uh, you know, natural lighting, and some will have uh, artificial lighting. But there's just a kind of um, possible. Our floors will will be um, will be wood. We're working out all the details and finishes at the moment. Um, yeah, some more different views uh, of the of the different spaces. Reconfigurable, which is a very large um, temporary exhibition space. Uh, we have a gallery with extremely tall ceilings. Uh, the idea being you could look at it from above, looking down, um, and as well we'll give an opportunity to kind of highlight one or two like really prominent large-scale uh, sculptures or installations. Um, and then uh, we also are are doing a gallery which we're calling the Garden Gallery, which would be uh, have a view out into the rooftop. Um, it's a kind of wooden clad space, and the idea um, in this gallery would be to to be able to kind of highlight a, um, a different relationship to to viewing work. I mean, at the beginning, it was thought that we would have obviously a lot of Chinese um, ink painting or ink art in this space, um, and that may still be the case, but I think it can be used in a lot of other ways as well. Um, 
to combine ink art with other kinds of, of media, but a kind of a, perhaps a little bit more of a um, contemplative space that might have a closer connection to, to, to nature and the outdoors since you have this kind of view um, outside. And, and to recognize that in, in the context of, of Asia where we are, there are different ways of looking at art and it isn't always approached through the sort of white modernist cube. So we want to provide some other types of spaces and materials. And then there's a roof terrace, obviously, which um, will have some art uh, artworks outside and uh, public uh, access um, or, or rentals for events and things like that. Yeah, this is a rendering of what the roof might look like. Um, still getting into details of how this all happens, but um, this is yeah the idea and above uh, some of the gallery uh, some of the office. So the tower is divided into um, curatorial center, which is a fancy name for offices. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of serious, actually, in, that, in terms of how we had to, um, yeah, kind of come up with a, a way to, uh, yeah, justify the fact that our offices will be in in a building with highly desirable views um, in Hong Kong. <laughs> so we have a cafe, we'll have a research center, we'll be like a library, and... Um, and a kind of study archive and the curatorial center essentially is offices. And of course, like we have a sort of members lounge area. And then the very top few floors, um, which is this RDE, which is retail um, dining entertainment. So there will be some restaurants and cafes um, at the top floor. And as well, um, a kind of uh, art, other, what are we calling a, um, other arts organizations. So we may be able to rent out some of those spaces to other arts organizations in Hong Kong. Um, that look to have their offices or, or space there sort of um, at, yeah so this is somewhat like income producing um, space within within the building um, yeah conservation and storage facility I think pretty straightforward um, there will be art storage space we also have some areas that might be more visible to people uh, to try to kind of remove that that sharp uh, distinction that usually happens between what's in the galleries and what's sort of back of house in the in the storage spaces that people normally don't ever see. So we're trying to provide like a sort of visible storage, a way for um, audiences to kind of experience things in that kind of limbo. They're not exactly things that are have been put um, in the galleries as part of an exhibition, but they could still be viewed or seen in their storage uh, sort of state. Um, yeah, this is another view of that building, conservation at the top floor, art storage, and some of sort of mixture exhibition um, slash storage. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, another view from, what, uh, from the harbor uh, with this kind of uh, our education center there at the, at the front. So now I'll just... Um, go into some more uh, information about the collection. So, uh, as you know, we have been building the collection uh, M Plus since um, I, it's been about three, I think it's yeah, approximately three years or so. And um, a bit of background. 
So we're in the progress of building the collection. Um, it encompasses 20th and 21st century uh, visual art, uh, sorry, visual culture. And um, when we're saying 21st century, uh, I would say primarily it ends up being the latter part of the 20th century. So we're primarily looking at 1950 onwards or post-war period um, onwards. And uh, we have some numbers here that are um, from, well, I mean, numbers are changing constantly. I think, you know, we have an acquisitions meeting like next week, so there'll be even different different numbers after that. But um, in short, uh, as some of you know, the uh, Uli Sig uh, collection that entered um, M Plus in 2012 uh, provided a very important um, Foundation for our Chinese contemporary art, uh, and we've been since adding um, uh, on to that. And uh, Hong Kong uh, artists and designers are a very important, uh, play a very important role in the collection. So we're trying really to to build something that's international, that has a sort of global global vision, but at the same time can really speak from the place of Hong Kong. Because I think like. We all know that every museum, I mean, even as I've been here and visiting museums here, I, I'm always, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm, that I'm here in Australia. I'm looking at primarily or um, predominantly um, Australian art, and that's what I want to see. That's why I come here. I don't necessarily come here to see all the same things that I could see in, in you know, in Tate Modern or in MoMA. Um, you know, so I think there's a sense of being rooted in, in the place. Um, it is... Of course, and plus is a publicly funded um, organization and, and museum, so it is important in that sense. But I think another sense is that we don't envision this museum to be purely a kind of tourist attraction. Um, it's for the people of Hong Kong, and um, and so the the artists and designers that are there deserve to be recognized and also to be put, I think, in conversation with other practitioners outside of Hong Kong. I think that's, that's very important. If it were only about Hong Kong and that's, that's all we exhibited and that um, would potentially yeah, be a kind of disservice um, in the sense that I think that those artists need to have a way for their work to be seen in a larger context and a larger perspective. So we've been working really hard to build up the collection um, with Hong Kong artists and designers and creators, but at the same time, uh, we're looking around Asia and we're looking outside of Asia as well. So um, as of this year in April, I think we have, yeah, we have approximately 4,000 works. There's obviously different ways to to count things. (laughs) Um, And uh, and then there's a large number of donations. And Uli Sig donation is very large. Um, We received another donation from a Chinese collector, Guanyi, and and then artists in Hong Kong has also been they've also been very generous along the way um, to donate things to us and um, we've worked out various different arrangements partial purchases and 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 so on. Um, the collection in terms of the geography of the collection, uh, we use this uh, kind of thinking about a sort of concentric circles with sort of Hong Kong being at the center and then from there uh, radiating uh, outwards. It would look something like this. Hong Kong at the middle PR delta is the Pearl River uh, delta, which includes the sort of Guangzhou, Shenzhen, the whole southern part of, of China, Macau as well. 
And then from there, um, China, other parts of Asia, and then looking beyond uh, Asia. So it's a, it's a pretty rudimentary <laughs> uh, diagram there, but it gives you some sense. And as we're kind of uh, moving sort of outwards on this diagram, things get a bit more selective, you can say. I mean, we can't be comprehensive about all of these um, rings on the circle, but I think we try to be as comprehensive as possible when it comes to Hong Kong and, and Pearl River Delta, China, and then as we, as we sort of move um, to other regions. Just a very rough... Uh, this is borrowed from something, as you can imagine. We, uh, in our processes, need to provide certain kinds of documentation and, and um, information about how things are developing in terms of ge- geographies and numbers. I mean, it's a little bit off balance here because the PR China, of course, the Lisa collection gave us this huge um, group of works. And so we're now rapidly trying to, um, you know, sometimes fill in gaps that exist there, but but work on um, other areas uh, as well. But this is just to show you in a kind of snapshot of uh, the sort of pie chart where, where we are. Um, I think, that, yeah, this is from earlier this year. Uh, these are some examples of works in the collection, um, Hong Kong artists, uh, some key kind of moments. Uh, Lu Xiaquan, very important uh, ink painter, sort of the founder of a new ink movement um, in, in Hong Kong in the 1970s. Uh, uh, one of his students, Wu Shiswang, uh, also a very important uh, ink painter who traveled to the States, got involved with uh, design, and he was very influential in Hong Kong as he returned uh, to Hong Kong and was teaching and has a variety of uh, students um, that came out of his... So he was one of the first people who was doing... I mean, it's a kind of unlikely combination of sort of literati-style Chinese painting and uh, design. I mean, design in the sense of thinking of sort of spatial relationships. Um, he sort of had this, uh, as you can see in that painting, the sort of uh, dividing of a landscape into sort of prismatic um, uh, sections. Um, and then we have a map office, uh, which is a, um, a architectural sort of um, duo office uh, based in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, there are two partners. One is uh, French, one is Moroccan, but they've been in Hong Kong for 15, 20 years. And they uh, have made um, very large, uh, this particular work is a very large installation about the Pearl River Delta. So they're, they're architects that also do kind of architectural research and study. And this had the form of an installation uh, piece uh, with videos. And I think it includes like nine or ten artworks kind of combined into one massive uh, installation. And then another, you know, another kind of representation of the, what exists in Hong Kong in terms of... Um, Visual art, Chu Hingwa, a local artist, kind of um, self, uh, self-trained, and um, a painter who uh, had, at a, one period in time, um, taught a lot of, of younger uh, generation uh, Hong Kong artists. Uh, we also have, as I mentioned, sort of uh, design and architecture is very important. Uh, so something like the star... Um, 
Star Company, which is a uh, company became very popular in Hong Kong for producing these everyday plastic items. And they're very, you know, they sort of... um, produce you know, these thermoses, also like plates and glasses and cups, and everybody in Hong Kong who lives there recognizes these things because they just became a part of everyday um, life. And uh, they, you know, they were, part of their history is that they, their increasing and in, uh, their manufacturing increased at the moment in which there were certain embargoes on trade happening because of the Korean War around Asia. So this was a moment of, of Hong Kong kind of returning to its uh, manufacturing, uh, being a hub, and producing these plastics, which were just suddenly ended up in everybody's homes. Um, so our design curator has been working very hard to work with the company to kind of get some of the um, original designs and some of the drawings from them, uh, as well as some of the, the objects. Some of them are, you know, they're readily available, but maybe not in such a pristine condition and in such uh, depth and uh, again, another. Um, so we have also things like architectural models in the collection. Uh, this is um, a model of the uh, old uh, Peak Tower building, which is very um, iconic building for a certain uh, generation. Which, uh, as many of you know, has now been demolished, replaced by a new building. But um, this is a, a newly made uh, model by the uh, architects uh, for that building, and then. Um, King of Kowloon, who was a Hong Kong, again, a kind of outsider artist. He was sort of, he's known as one of these um, very early sort of graffiti type of um, artists. His work was mostly happening um, in the street. He was writing on public spaces, on doors, on uh, these sort of electrical boxes and post boxes. And um, he, you know, was doing this kind of uh, informal uh, calligraphy and um, his writing is all about the fact that he is claiming himself as the king, as the rightful king um, of, of Kowloon. And he sort of, thus he came up with this um, kind of nickname. Uh, so his work is the kind of work that was embedded in public space, and a lot of it has disappeared over the years, been painted over, or things have been taken down. Uh, We were fortunate to be um, notified before these doors were being um, taken off of a a building, so we were able to acquire uh, these doors. So things, um, uh, you know, artists of a variety of different uh, backgrounds. These are some examples of the SIG collection, and it's uh, it's obviously a collection with a very um, very deep uh, and uh, extensive, and uh, these are just some of the samples of sort of highlights um, of of artists. And we continue to build on the collection, um, you know, add in uh, works that that might have been. Um, you know, filling in some sort of historical gaps or, or regional uh, geographical uh, gaps. But these are some of the um, important works. And then moving across... Um, so the next few slides are kind of just little snapshots of things um, in the collection. I try to explain a little bit of how they come about or at least how they're grouped. Um, this is a kind of sampling of some of the works um, that we've collected uh, from Japan. So on the left, the three works there um, are actually left to the uh, Murakami piece and the Yamazaki piece are both, uh, these are both Gutai artists. 
Uh, we've been trying to build up the collection of Gutai work, very important post-war um, avant-garde movement. Um, as you know, a lot of these works, some of the most important ones, sit in Japanese uh, museum collections already. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of research, but we um, have been able and been fortunate enough to identify um, a few of them and add them to the collection, and as well a sort of... Um, uh, same, similar generation, but working in a different uh, kind of vein, uh, Yamaguchi Katsuhiro and uh, other artists of this kind of post-war avant-garde uh, movement, uh, doing kind of experiments with sort of light and space um, and sound. And then um, on the right are some examples also from design and architecture. Uh, at design in Japan... Um, particularly like graphic design, and on the bottom is a kind of more contemporary uh, designer. But Japan is, you know, it's an incredibly important uh, place for us when it comes to thinking about design in, in, in Asia. There were so many important designers that got their start there that influenced um, a lot of other designers around around Asia, and they had strong dialogues, um, of course, back uh, with with Europe and with uh, with America at the time. So... It's a very important uh, period for us. And this, when I say design includes graphic design, includes furniture, um, also includes things like uh, industrial, uh, industrial products um, as well. And then on the top right is a, uh, a Shinro Otake, who's uh, kind of, uh, I would say, an artist. He, this work... Uh, was shown just a few years ago when he was participating in Venice. So he's a very important sort of post-war avant-garde artist, but he's still continuing to be very active today. And so uh, we're still kind of looking at artists who are producing new things today, um, as well as the historical uh, material. There's certain artists like Namjoon Pak, who are incredibly uh, important, the sort of father of video art, um, and we've managed to build up, up to now, a very, I think a very um, impressive gathering of work um, of his that includes early uh, a painting of his that he made, um, 1959, uh, a photo album documenting some of his performances in New York and around um, and in Germany, and then some iconic uh, pieces of his uh, TV chairs and for TV. These are early sort of manipulations of the video image and including uh, video uh, installations up to TV bed, which is one of his early um, early examples of sort of using like a TV uh, wall. It sort of predates the very, very large TV walls that he started to make. Um, so someone like Nam Jun Pak is, in, is someone we feel very important because he was so influential um, around the world, but also amongst a lot of artists in Asia. Uh, so we've been able to, you know, see someone we we have kind of key anchor artists that we look at collecting very deeply, um, and he is one of them. Um, also, ink art. Uh, some examples of uh, some of the ink art that we have in the collection. This is mostly Taiwanese um, artists from the very important, also to sort of post-war uh, art groups, the Fifth Moon Group and the Dongfang Group. Uh, these were sort of early experimenters in taking what was a kind of conservative Chinese literati uh, ink painting style into new directions um, and expanding that language, working with abstraction um, and sort of, or new um, 
new sort of techniques with the brush or somehow manipulating the paper. And some of these artists, uh, or several of them actually, have you know, started in Taiwan and then they moved um, abroad. So Feng Zhongrei, I think, now in San Francisco. Xiao Qing uh, moved to Milan. Uh, Li Yuanjia to the UK. Uh, Zhuangzi is in New York. So it's also part of a diaspora kind of experience for us or a way to sort of narrate um, these traditions moving outside of their sort of home base um, into other regions. Uh, again, continuing to look across Asia, uh, a series of works here um, that we've managed to add to the collection that for us represent a certain moment in the 1990s uh, when a lot of these artists were uh, beginning to reach sort of international exposure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the kind of birth of the, the global, globe, globe-trotting um, international artists. This is also comes at the same time that you have a sort of biennial uh, fever growing. Um, and, you know, artist Michael Lin, who's a Taiwanese artist, uh, who's known for making, as many of you may have seen, very large-scale floral uh, paintings on walls and floors. Uh, we, you know, have... Uh, been fortunate to be able to collect some some of his you know early examples where he's kind of experimenting with uh, with painting and how painting moves between two dimensional and three dimensional surfaces. Um, uh, Korean Korean uh, artist Young Hae Chang, uh, Harry Dono from Indonesia. This is the early work that was exhibited um, actually in New York in 1992. Very important um, exhibition, traditions and tensions. And uh, Rick Ritt, Tirvanaja, whose installation is cooking installation, um, a work that he originally made uh, for a show in Italy. And um, yeah, these are kind of part of a, a narrative we're hoping, trying to build around uh, yeah, the sort of beginning of uh, international art. And then continuing to look sort of across different parts um, of Asia, Ming Wong, um, very important uh, performance artist uh, based in Singapore. This is one of his earlier works. And again, uh, another Singaporean designer, Hans Tan, um, Cambodian artist, Sophie, which is a kind of installation that is modular with using these rattan uh, shapes that can be uh, installed in different, uh, in different ways. And um, yeah, these are just, again, kind of snapshots. And as well, I think for us, it's very important to look at this diaspora and to think um, beyond Asia, not only of the artists uh, living there, working there, but the artists who have left and how their work in some way was um, influenced or inspired by being part of art scenes um, in various locations. Uh, Kusama, of course, in New York, this is one of her airmail um, sticker collages that was made uh, in New York in the 1960s. And then um, and Richard Lin, who's a kind of minimalist uh, Taiwanese artist who, who settled in the UK and was uh, working in this kind of minimalist um, uh, abstract uh, style. And, uh, and then sort of younger generation, Hegu Yang and uh, Paul Chan, who are both sort of, uh, maybe you could say, the sort of younger generation of these global artists who... I mean, no one really knows where they live because they're always moving. <laughs> um, they have studios in maybe two or three different places and, um, yeah, represent this kind of nomadic uh, um, moment. 
um, yeah, and we, I would just happen to meet with John Young in, in Melbourne. So these are works that we have. Uh, we have three paintings of his. This is one. Um, this one obviously has a very direct link to, to Hong Kong. Uh, it's a photograph there of one of the, uh, during the riots in the 1960s from this uh, flower, artificial flower uh, factory. Uh, Ken Lum, a Canadian Chinese artist, Patty Chang. So this is, and Byron Kim, uh, Korean American. This represents a sort of Asian, maybe you say Asian American or sort of overseas, overseas Chinese uh, artists who are in many ways. Uh, still in dialogue with their uh, questions about their own uh, histories and past um, and identity, but at the same time, I think you know what they bring is uh, a, an experimentation of new uh, new visual sort of languages. Um, often, not always, but sometimes having to do with uh, you know with abstraction and uh, and yeah, branching out of familiar areas, but inflected with a kind of history uh, and personal narratives. And again, this is kind of reaching the end here. Uh, I think it was the last couple slides. These are um, non-Asian artists or non-Asian designers, practitioners who have maybe spent time in, in Asia or created very important works or bodies of work that were influential. Uh, Paul Rudolph, um, this is a, a building and uh, many of you may recognize we... we um, have this sketch uh, drawing from this building that he did in, in Jakarta. And uh, Salsa is a really important uh, Italian designer as part of um, the sort of Memphis group and uh, a lot of Japanese uh, sort of postmodern designers were highly influenced by Salsa and worked together um, with him at different times. Um, and then some works like by Aeronaut Mick, this is a work that he created in Hong Kong and uh, Anthony Gormley, uh, I mean, I think this was exhibited in Sydney in several years ago, 2006, I think, yeah. Um, a very important sort of landmark uh, work in his series of the field series, and this is the Asian field one, which is, I think, arguably one of the largest that he ever uh, made, and it was produced in China in 2003 and traveled in China, and... Um, so it took a lot of doing. <laughs> this one took a lot of time to work out how we collect this, and um, we are fortunate to have a donor help us in 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 the process. Um, so, and I think we just signed the contract. It took like a year <laughs> to finalize it, um, but now I can officially say that this is part of the collection, and and we're we're really absolutely thrilled. It's such an important work, and in China, it was a really really important uh, piece. I think a lot of Chinese artists still make reference to it they they still remember the fact that this was one of those moments that I think they kind of encountered an artist doing something collaboratively interactive way with local uh, you know local citizens and it sort of opened up their their eyes in terms of thinking how work can be produced um, so yeah so we're really really excited we, we could add this uh, and these kinds of works to, to the collection Xie uh, De Qing Taiwanese uh, American artist highly influential uh, performance work and we uh, now have the entire uh, uh, his entire oeuvre which includes six uh, major uh, performances that he created over his career uh, five of them being one year long uh, performances and then of course 
the lasting, the 13-year uh, plan. So, so something like this, the artist had in mind that he wanted to have... He only has, I think, three editions of the work. One he would like to have in, in um, America, an American collection. One he would like to have in a European collection. And he wanted to have one in Asian collections. So, so there are few places that could have all of the works together um, to be able to show them together, which is very unique. And then um, I just sort of end on this kind of... This is just our way of... When we talk about building the collection... Um, people often ask how we go about it, what's the thinking, how do you, yeah, where do you start and, and, and end, and, um, you know, for us, it's, it's basically, uh, you know, it's a kind of diagram that you, you would think, like, we try to make diagrams all the time, and it's really hard to do, because, Basically, with a collection, every time you're adding new works into it, the whole thing changes. I mean, it's 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 like any collection. If you if you um, collect any item, you you know you think you have a kind of complete or semi-complete uh, picture, and you try to make a link between one thing and another, and then something else comes in and takes you off in a different uh, direction. So when we were trying to think of a sort of mind map of the collection, we we just started googling these electrical diagrams because I kept thinking that this was sort of one way to think about it. There's moments of sort of hubs and connection points and there are lines, sometimes the lines move really directly between one artist and another um, or sometimes they move, you know, they get routed through through different ways. Um, and so, you know, on one hand we would like it to be almost this kind of neat, you know, uh, movement from one direction to the other um, but then in reality I think it kind of looks like this where it's just like it's sort of an explosion that happens and there's a lot of things that you can't predict uh, will come up um, sometimes you know sometimes something like the Anthony Gormley piece like you know it just it just came up and other things we more actively are pursuing and looking for and proactively uh, seeking out. But in any case, I think it, it is a kind of, um, it's a kind of network uh, and it is a kind of process of, uh, yeah, sort of knowledge, knowledge building. Um, it's in, it's ongoing. And um, if I were to, yeah, give this presentation a year from now, it might look very different, and I would have probably very different slides. Um, but that's the snapshot that I have for you today. So I hope that's helpful, and I welcome any questions that anybody has about what we're doing. very pleased to say that a number of those artists we've shown here, um, quite apart from John Young, uh, who was when, uh, shown when we were commercial gallery, and I knew he was in the collection, but uh, Tokujin Yoshioka, Sophia Pitch, um, I can't remember who else, but there were three or four or five uh, that have either been shown in Sydney or shown here. Um, so it, it, it was pleasing for us. Uh, guys, we've got... I've, my watch broke just as I started, so you'll have to help me. What time is it now? Quarter to. So we've got about 15 minutes for, for questions. Um, come on, Tony, let's... Uh, there, there's a... Can you elaborate, talk a bit more about Lee Sieg? 
Yeah. Um, well, there's different ways to to talk about that. I mean, I guess I can say from the M plus um, story, uh, Lars. Uh, you know, we're he knew Lars at the very early stage that we're building a museum from scratch, and you're building a collection from scratch, and. I think uh, it's a really daunting uh, task to be faced with. And I think that at the very beginning, Lars uh, had this idea, which was that thinking back of how other museums are formed, most of the time they start from from some personal collection or private, you know, some personal individual. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I think the first thing that came to mind, obviously at that point was something like Uli Sig and was thinking like, that kind of collection um, could form this, yeah, just give us that huge leap forward in terms of having a foundation. Um, the conversation, I wasn't at, at plus when the conversation took place, so I wasn't part of it, but uh, there was a complex, you know, discussion. I know that Uli had had uh, thought about other museums in China and approached other museums in China, um, but I think he, you know, he really wanted, like, like anybody would, um, to be, you know, feel very secure in how the work was being handled, taken care of. Um, and he had certain ideas about how it would be shown and exhibited. And uh, I think the Chinese museums couldn't think that far in advance and couldn't give him that level of, of comfort and security. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were fortunate that, you know, we were able to have these conversations with him and he felt, uh, yeah, comfortable enough uh, with us. So, you know, so it's so what was worked out in the end was a partial purchase, partial donation situation, and um, yeah, and so and Uli is uh, yeah, he's incredibly um, important um, to we've now you know we've now organized uh, one exhibition, and I will have another. So there's a series of exhibitions we're organizing already from the collection that are traveling. So one has been organized, opened earlier this year in Sweden. It just opened. Like last week, my colleague Peely uh, was curating that one. It opened at the Whitworth Gallery in Manchester. Yeah, so that show is traveling. It will come to Hong Kong as well. Um, and there's, you know, there was a little bit of, I would say, a little bit of controversy in Hong Kong over the SIG collection. I think there were some feelings that um, for a period of time, people felt that this was public funds and Hong Kong, you know, taxpayers' money. And there was some discomfort about that amount of money being spent on buying Chinese art. But I think over time people have come around and seen just how important that collection is and how, yeah, how, how sort of valuable it is to have it, um, you know, where we are. And part of the reason that Uli considered Hong Kong was because he knew that if he had given the collection, not only the security, if he given the collection to museums in China, they may not have been able to exhibit half of that work yeah. for various reasons, right? Yeah. Claire Roberts curated that. Um, it was a cross-city uh, exhibition in Canberra at the National Portrait Gallery, mm -hmm. where at the time I was on the board. And here, we had just, I think, three or four works. They had about 55, but all the works were taken from Oli Sig's collection and selected by Claire Roberts, who went to China, uh, to um, Switzerland at that time. Uli uh, didn't um, sort of reveal to us that at that stage, we knew in the future he would want to 
Um, he was always planning to donate, gift sale, this collection to a museum in China. Yeah, I don't think he was thinking specifically of Hong Kong. But as Pauline said, you know, th there were so many restrictions, censorship restrictions, uh, let alone uh, security and the right air conditioning uh, kind of practices. And a lot of these museums in China look terrific on paper. But when you actually go to them, you know, the air conditioning doesn't work or it's not uh, quite what you expect it to be. And the, uh, the infrastructure is not always as perfect as you are led to believe, in addition to which there's still very strong censorship in China. That's what this piece is about in here, uh, the Chinese Bible. These are not diaries in the way we would understand diaries. People were not free to write their feelings in these diaries. They were more, I think, what they resemble more what we would call scrapbooks or something. Mm -hmm. And mostly, and during the heavy uh, censorship periods like the Cultural Revolution, if you, uh, you were obliged to hand your diary in to your superiors, and if you, your thoughts weren't pure enough, you had to repent and God knows what and be sent off to the gulag if you didn't repent in a, or, or even have, you know, if, you were, if you, your thoughts weren't, uh, if you didn't repent uh, in a way that they felt was adequate. So you can really understand why Uli didn't. And we were told after organising Go Figure that uh, I was a documentist, I remember it very well in 2012, mm -hmm. that he was, it had obviously been finalised and the gift sale had been organised. And what we ended up by doing is borrowing <coughs> the work, not from Uli, but borrowing it from M+. So, because the work had gone to M+, already. So it was a strange kind of... We started with Uli's collection, we ended up with the M+, collection. Um, but uh, such a marvellous man, and, you know, such a serious collection, and yeah. all the people who complained, really, I mean, you can't satisfy people who are going to complain about that. <laughs> There's another question. Go on. Sorry. Hello. Um, in the West, uh, events change or shaped history, and especially in China and in the West, that gives or gives the form of modernism or and surrealism and other art form. That's the anchor of the Western institution. In Hong Kong, apart, in my knowledge, apart from a little bit of post-colonial sentiment, um, the, the colourful demographics of Hong Kong doesn't really have that anchor. Mm. So how can a collection um, facilitate uh, um, a, a, a myriad of people who have absolutely no idea of modernism and other um, uh, move, art movements, so to speak? I'm really glad you asked that. It's a really important question because it really gets to the core of like why we're doing this museum, right? And what what that that sense of visual culture, um, yeah, refers to. Because I, I mentioned Lu Shou Kun and the ink painting and the new ink um, movement. So yeah, you could say that um, there wasn't that 
rich yeah tradition of modernism in 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 the region uh but i do think that you know it's seeped in in different ways and there are different artists and lucio kun is one of those artists who helped to kind of bring um a new yeah a new sort of vision and integrate um somehow a kind of his understanding of sort of modern modern ideals and and thinking uh with a kind of very traditional uh past and history of 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 chinese ink painting um so that kind of thing becomes a kind of touch point to then sort of radiate out to other areas and why i think it's it's very important in m plus that we have ink painting or ink art uh, well represented um, because for a lot of the yeah a lot of the sort of arts community in Hong Kong that's the sort of reference point you know that people yeah that's the reference point that they have before they'll have you know, think about installation art or video art certainly um, but I do think that you know what's happened in the more recent uh, years is Hong Kong you know because it is a really yeah it is a very hybrid diverse place um, you do have you have all kinds of things overlapping and mixing, you know, with uh, each other, and it happens to be a place that, on the one hand, is seen as the you know the, the sort of stopover, the entrepot, like it's a kind of trading port. So things and ideas have moved through. Yeah, so there's a lot of like a, you know uh, ideas and moving in and out of the place, um, but then at the same time, I think it's rooted by those traditions of of sort of of ink, of ink painting or whatnot. So it's for us, it's a lot about that intersection of those things. And then when I even mentioned something about uh, design uh, or architecture and design, uh, but particularly something like industrial design, I mean historically i mean hong kong was so important um in a in a kind of economic way as a sort of as a sort of free place um at least during during uh the wars so what that did was just sort of influence a certain kind of production of things that couldn't have happened in any other uh context um and along with taiwan there was a strong dialogue with taiwan and a lot of the artists there um and as well japan so I mean, Hong Kong is really fascinating because it has that that hybrid um, hybrid past, uh, and as well because it's been exposed to yeah so many things. So you have a kind of diversity that I think now, when we look forward, it's it's that's what's expanding and that's what makes it interesting to be there now. As you see how it's shifting and changing um, today, you have young you know younger artists who you know are thinking very internationally. Um, but you still have very a, a large number of young artists still working um, in 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 ink art and ink painting, and it's still a very big part of the of the tradition and the sort of aesthetic traditions. So I guess like with M M plus, it's uh, trying to maybe narrate or think about that story about you know yeah how how uh, modernism um, influenced and and took place there, but maybe like everything that sort of there was a sort of transfer that happened once it reached the new place, and then that transfer um, had different results and it went in different directions um, and it may be i mean it may not exactly follow the same trajectories that you see yeah in the western context but to try to narrate somehow those different stories from the position and place of of hong kong rather than or you know within asia i could say you know 
Yeah. Uh, I was just saying that um, uh, my impression of I.M. Pei's wonderful museum in Suzhou out of Shanghai um, is the embodiment of, of everything that um, you've just been saying because um, the architecture there is modern, his modern take on traditional Chinese architecture and the whole ambiance of the place. is like that. And that is an incredibly popular museum with local people, is it not? Yeah. And can I ask you while I've got the microphone? Um, I, I, I'm sure I read somewhere that um, uh, Sig's collection is essentially his 